Open up your Bibles to Psalm 34 and got to make a correction about that introduction. I am not from Covenant Fellowship Church. I am from Covenant Fellowship Church and Risen Hope Church. It is great to be here. If you're a guest, uh, you're wondering who I am, ask somebody else. It's too complicated for me to go into it. Uh, but it's great to be here. It's great to be here. It's great to see everybody. I'm going to have a chance to look out and see all of you. Okay, good. This is going to take... I'm not going to... And there's Bill making himself known. Bill right up front. So, uh, it's great to be back. Um, let's read Psalm 34. We'll be going verses 1 to 14 from God's holy word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, and listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may, he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word today, God, I pray that you would help me to feed your people, Lord God. We, we don't count on the preaching. We count on the word preached. We don't count on the preacher. We count on the unction of the Spirit. We don't count on the speaking. We count on the hearing. So open our ears. Soften our hearts. Let us know you better as we encounter you in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, King David lived a pretty complicated and colorful life. Psalm 34, if you read the, the uh, introduction to it, which is not part of God's Word, but it is in there because of the traditions around some of these psalms, It comes after one of the more quirky events in David's life. 
It was during the time when King Saul had had, had it out for David. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we get the story that sets up this psalm. And I'm going to read that story from 1 Samuel. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, or Abimelech, which is another way of saying the same king, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? I love that. Do I lack madmen around me? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, think about that story and then think about this song. That's a story that doesn't seem to fit this song. It doesn't feel like this song should have come from that story. It's an odd song for David to write after he just drooled his way out of trouble. He gets to the hideout in the cave of Adullam and he writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. I don't think so. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. I don't think so. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. At what point, David, in this last 24 to 48 hours did you magnify the Lord? When did you exalt his name? So it can be interesting. Why does this come out of his mouth? The key themes, and this is crucial, the key themes in this psalm are not stressing the boasting of David for his great courage and boldness. The key themes in this psalm are fear and shame and troubles. David ran in fear from one trouble, the king Saul, and his insane rage to another equally bad trouble in the presence of his enemies. It's like running out of a burning building on the I-95. In fact, just the other day, I was driving down a road, uh, I guess it was, I don't know, maybe Route 3, and I'm driving down, you're going about 45 miles an hour, and there's a tree overhanging, and this squirrel just drops out of the tree onto the highway. And I thought, oh, he's in trouble. 
You know, it's one thing. It's one thing to drop out of a tree if you're school. You usually don't survive that. But then to drop out into the middle of the highway, and I saw him panic, and I thought, you should panic. Get out of here. Same thing with David. He drops out of one danger into another danger. And so he wrestles with the question, what difference should my relationship with God make in my life in times of shame and fear and trouble? Psalm 34 comes out of that experience. We tend to read Psalms as if David is always triumphant. Even, even Psalm 23 is not a picture of David kind of sitting on the hill admiring how, how quiet the sheep are. Psalm 23 is David on the run trying to sort out where he places trust. And so David is reflecting in Psalm 34 what should God mean to him in times of trouble and fear and shame. And one thing he learns is going to be our focus today. So my main point today is simply this. True faith sustains those who are satisfied by it. True faith sustains those who are satisfied by it. And we're going to look primarily at one verse in this psalm. And that's verse 34.8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And just if you're taking notes, I'll give you three basic points we're going to talk about from this verse. Number one, tasting is our step of faith. Tasting is our step of faith. Number two, seeing is God's gift of faith. And number three, we have refuge because the Lord is good. Those are our three points. So number one, trusting is our step of faith. Think about tasting. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What happens when we taste something? We receive something. We take it in. We imbibe it. There's something about tasting that connects us to a substance that we put in our mouths. Tasting of all the senses affects us most. In fact, there's a certain, if you think about it, there's a certain vulnerability in tasting something. Let's, let's do this little mental exercise. Suppose I come to you and I have a small paper bag and you can tell from the bag that there's something yucky and mushy in it. You know that because it's kind of bleeding out of the bag a little bit and it looks like it's sort of steamy and warm and it's kind of gunky. And, and I'll show you, and you know it's mushy because there's these little brown drops coming out of the bag. And I bring it to you, and I say, guess what I've got? And you say, I don't really care. Um, but I say, listen, touch it. Now you might go, okay, okay, and you might touch it. Great, okay, I touched it. I say, oh, no, no, smell it. Now, you're not going to walk over there and go, no, you're going to a little sniff. What is it? 
But you might just do that because you're just that curious. But then I say, taste it. And that's where you draw the line. If you're smart. Now I grew up, I grew up down south and that could be boiled peanuts. And as we said down south, that's good eating. But it looks like that. Or it could be that gunky stuff that you get out of your gutters when things have grown in there too long. But whatever it is, that, that you're not going to put that in your mouth. There's something of vulnerability that keeps you from doing that. Because what you taste will either repel you or will stoke your desires. Let me give you a positive illustration. A number of years ago, I had a friend, uh, a friend from Taiwan, and he had lived with us for a couple of years when we lived in Overbrook and we were in international student ministry. And uh, so he had lived with us while he was studying here in, in the U.S. Uh, he went back home, uh, got married, and then about 10 years after he moved, he, he invited us and paid for us to come to Taiwan for 10 days just to, to, to thank us for being, um, for, for being his host while he was here. So we went, and he's a foodie. And so, uh, so what he wanted to do is he said, and not, you know, he said there are seven cuisines of Chinese food that are on the island of Taiwan, and I want to take you to the best of each. So our whole trip was a trip of eating. We would go places just to eat. So we're driving around Taipei, we're different places, um, and, then, and then we got on a plane, right? And so we flew from one part of the island all the way to, the, to another part of the island. We landed in this totally different place. And he, he said, okay, this is where we're going to a special restaurant. And I said, what do they serve? And he said, wonton soup. And I said, we got on a plane and we flew from one part of the island to the other for wonton soup. He said, yes. He said, I said, what else do they serve? Wonton soup. That's all they serve. And so sure enough, we go to this restaurant and we go in. It's a little place in this little city. And, uh, and we, we go in and I, start, I know something special because there are all these celebrities. Like Billy Joel had been there. In this small town in Taiwan, I thought, okay, well, that says something. So, uh, so he's there. There's pictures of Billy Joel eating in this restaurant. So we go, and we have this soup. And, of course, you know, I, I live in this area. I can get wonton soup around the corner. Nothing special for me until I tasted it. It was unbelievable. It was like drugs in it. It was like something that just grabbed your taste buds and said, come alive! We had, and that's all they served. It was wonton soup and a soft drink. That's all we had. So we ate there, we, we, we stayed overnight. We, we were going out to the airport the next day, had to fly out, and we almost missed our plane because we made the taxi guy stop again to get more wonton soup. That's a case where taste overwhelms you, taste redefines you, 
Taste gives you an experience that changes your whole perception. I don't eat wonton soup anymore because I've been spoiled for anything but this restaurant. But the point about it is taste changed me. Taste affects us in ways that few things do. My message of it. Line here a little bit. Great. Tasting is the door to satisfaction. What's interesting is there's a remarkable thread on the act of tasting and eating that that runs throughout the Bibles concerning God's sanctifying activity, God's saving activity. And just walk this through this with me. The Jews in Egypt were called to, to not just to kill the Passover lamb but, and to spread the blood over the doorway, but to eat the lamb that they killed. The whole atonement system in the Old Testament, in fact, was not just the sacrificing of animals, but the eating of the sacrifice. When Jesus ate with people, he wasn't just having a meal, he was identifying himself as Savior with them and among them. So many of the parables, if you read them, including eating as a symbol of covenant acceptance with God, Jesus fed the 5,000 to show how abundant he was as Savior. The communion meal at the Last Supper and the bread and the wine is one of the most profound pictures of, God, of the gospel in the Bible. In Peter's vision in the book of Acts, God tells him to eat that's what he thought he shouldn't eat, telling him that the gospel was meant to feed the Gentiles. The writer of Hebrews said we need so the solid food of the gospel if we're to have a healthy spiritual life. Our experience of the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God in the book of Revelation is a glorious meal in the presence of God. We no longer fear death, the Bible says, because the scripture says that Jesus tasted death on our behalf. This theme of taste and eat speaks of the experience of knowing God. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that a taste of Jesus will tell us that He is good and He will satisfy us. Now let me speak to parents though. This gospel, we, that song today, I remember my, singing, you know, my kids sang as well, um, and my grandkids. Um, that, that's a very simple gospel message. We sang another song, the gospel song. Very simple gospel messages. We sing those songs that your daughter knew that song because that's the essential message that children need to hear. It's what we want our kids to taste more than anything. The gospel is the truth we offer them, but the work of God is to help them truly ingest it. We want God to open up their mouths, the mouths of their hearts, to be willing to believe what 
they hear. Now I think my experience is that the task of teaching a one-year-old how to eat food happens in order to prepare us to help our older kids know how to eat the fruit of the gospel, the food of the gospel. I think we're meant to learn from that experience. If you've ever tried to feed a one-year-old, you know what I'm talking about. Because ultimately, there's true food that we want to be able to help them taste. So, if you think about it, you try to feed a one-year-old. Sometimes it goes everywhere from where, than where it's supposed to go. You ever had an experience where, okay, the plate is empty, but I don't think anything went in. It's everywhere. It's on the floor. It's on them. It's on me. Did anything really go in? That can be the experience, if you're a parent, of, of sharing the food of the gospel with your children. Did anything go in at all? We just had this amazing conversation, and now they're asking about Peter Pan. Did anything go in at all? We have other situations where sometimes they'll just clam up, and they just won't let anything in. You've seen this if you've had a one-year-old where it's just like that, and you can't get the spoon in. And you try everything. Here comes the airplane. Crash. The airplane crashes into the, into the mouth because it won't open. Sharing the gospel with our older kids is like that sometimes. You, you want to try to get it in, but everything they're doing is saying no. I don't want to know. That's teenagers. Don't want to hear about your Jesus right now. Got my mouth shut. No, no, I'm not. I'm, no, no. And then sometimes... You get it in, and they just spit it right back out at you. And that's what happens as well with sharing the gospel with our children. Sometimes we think we get it in, and next thing it comes out in all kinds of weird, messy ways. As if somehow they digested it. But by the time it actually got digested, it was something totally different than what I thought I was given. And it just comes out all mushy and all over me. So if you're a parent, just a couple of points about sharing this gospel, helping them taste the gospel that might help you. One is this. If you're bringing your children to the house of God, you're bringing them to the banquet of the gospel. If you're here with your kids today, you have brought them to a banquet. Now, like any banquet with kids, they may not want to come. They may want something else. Like when you take your kids to a nice restaurant, all they want is chicken fingers. They may, may not like the way it's served. They may not even like who they're eating with. But whether they're sitting in here, they're sitting down in Promise Kingdom, they're getting a weekly taste of the gospel. And that's valuable. That little bit at a time helps them to see how different this good food is from the junk food that they get the rest of their lives. So see bringing your children to the house of God as a way that to regularly give them the taste of the gospel. Number two, parents, how to help your children, how to think about this. If you're honoring Christ in your home, you're giving your children 
a regular taste of the gospel. God has chosen to make this gospel truth something we can imbibe through example. We speak and we live. We live the gospel. How we respond to life. How we relate to one another. How we handle difficulties. How, what happens when we're tempted. Those things are meant to radiate the truth of the gospel to our children. The question I have for you as parents is, are they getting an authentic taste of the gospel in the way they see you live your life at home? Recognize that if you're living your life in a way at home that's different than what God calls you to live, they're not getting an authentic taste. In fact, what they likely may get is a bitter taste of the gospel because of the way you didn't live it. And so that's an encouragement. It's encouragement to recognize that it's not your job to save your kids. It's not your job to get them to believe but they're watching. And you don't have to be perfect. But you do want to let the gospel radiate in your home. So tasting. Tasting is our step of faith. It's, it's that willingness to open up and let the gospel get beyond our defenses. And begin to affect our lives. But number two, seeing is God's gift of faith. Tasting can change everything when it leads to seeing. The passage says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We taste, and on the basis of that taste, we see. Now, seeing in the Bible is not just noticing something. It is understanding and comprehending something. Something, when we really see in the Bible, it changes us. It's not simply recognizing something. A number of years ago, we were on a vacation down in the Williamsburg area, and uh, it was a rainy day, so we went to this small uh, museum. It was a, uh, like an like a aerospace kind of museum, very small, down in uh, sort of Virginia Beach area. And so my wife, my son, who's now 22 years old, he was probably all of four years old, and so she had him, and so we're all running out museum and she had him and she got on an elevator with him and uh, and the elevator stopped and the doors opened and in walked Jackie Chan into the elevator now coincidentally we had been going through a massive Jackie Chan movie watching marathon we were totally into Jackie Chan at that time we had seen all the movies. We'd seen, we'd seen his Chinese movies. We'd seen his American. We were up on Jackie Chan. And so he gets in with somebody else. Apparently, the story was, he was down there filming something, and, it, and they were looking for a day to do something, so he came to the museum. So he's walking around the museum with people, and so he gets on the elevator with my wife. She's got, got her, son, her son there, and she recognizes him. And she's in those awkward moments. I'm in the presence of celebrity. What do I do? And there's nobody else. It's free cell phones. So there's no be able to take a picture. She's got to make her moment right then. And so what does she say? Well, she says what everybody else says. Let me tell you about Jesus. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> she, 
she said, I love all your movies. And, <laughs> and he just looked at her like, I gotta get off this elevator. You see, what happened was the presence of Jackie Chan affected her in the moment. And it became a nice story. But it didn't change her life. It was encountering, but not really seeing. When we taste and see, it changes us. Did you ever notice how when Jesus came to people in the Gospels, he came to give them a taste of himself. He rarely came and just said, boom, here I am. The only time you ever saw sort of full tilt Jesus is when he was encountering people who, who were disobeying God. And then he'd swipe the temple. He would do things. He would come at him full tilt. But you never got the full Jesus when he encountered people. He usually come upon people and, they would, and then something would happen and they would walk away going, wow, I, I didn't get that. Over and over in the Bible, one of the things that occurs to me is when the disciples get in the boat with Jesus and he's asleep in the boat and, uh, and they go uh, out and, and they hit, the, hit the, the storm in the sea and they appeal to Jesus and he just says, stop, stop, mom, goes back to bed. And they go, who is this man? See, they had, they had noticed him. They had been with him and had tasted of him. But that moment, they saw. They saw something about Jesus that affected them, that changed them. Just because we taste Jesus doesn't mean we're going to see him. There are a lot of people who tasted Jesus in the Bible who didn't see him. There are a lot of people now who taste Jesus but don't see it. Tasting is what we do, but only God makes us see. Seeing is enlightenment. It's understanding. It's comprehending. Ultimately, seeing is trusting. You know someone has seen Jesus because they trust Him. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind not just to prove He could do it, He wanted them to experience a different reality. The opening the eyes of the blind is a, is a parable in real form of helping people encounter a new reality. Seeing is transformative. If someone truly tastes Jesus, and sees Jesus, they will see that He is good. They will want more of Him. If someone doesn't want more of Jesus, it means that they've never truly tasted Him. There can be no indifference. Those who taste and see Jesus want more of Him above anything else. Does it mean that they're not tempted to other things? Does it mean they don't get distracted? Does it mean that sin doesn't affect their lives? That their, 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 their vision is clouded? Does it mean they get their eyes on other things? No. All that does happen. That's part of living in this world with a, with a flesh that still battles sin and an enemy that wants to deceive us. But the true believer, the true one who has tasted and seen 
will always say, but I need, most of all, Jesus Christ. The old talk, Puritan pastor Thomas Vincent said there, there is no discovery to the eye of the mind comparable to the discovery of Christ unto the eye of faith. There is nothing like tasting and seeing Jesus Christ. Another great example of this in the, in, in the Gospels in Luke 24, the, the Emmaus Road. Remember the story there, Jesus is resurrected. Uh, there's two disciples who we don't know if they're part of the original 12 or not. Probably not. They're walking along the road. Um, and this man comes upon them and says, can I walk with you? He said, sure, come on. I starts talking about this Jesus. Starts talking about the, the, the scriptures and what it means. And they're walking along having a great conversation. They go and you know, say, hey, listen, why don't you hang out and have, have dinner with us? Great. And then so it says this. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There was something going on. They were encountering Jesus and they couldn't put their... They didn't have a category for a resurrected Christ. So they were trying to figure out what was going on. They thought, I don't know what they thought, but they realized they didn't see... It wasn't until they actually saw Jesus do something with the food. Break the bread. This is my body. Offer it to them that their eyes were open and they saw and their burning hearts turned into burning desires to live for His glory. Remember that story about the soup restaurant I told you earlier. I asked my friend, that, um, I don't remember the, the, the Chinese name for it, but I asked him, I said, what, what's, the, what's the, the, the translation of the name of the restaurant? And he said, the actual translation is, the soup is good. That's what the restaurant was called. The soup is good. The unmistakable conclusion, the only sensible conclusion of tasting the soup is to declare the soup is good. The tasting and seeing Jesus is so much different. It's not comparative with anything else. To say the soup is good simply means compared to other soup, this is really good. To compare to other eating experiences, this is really good. To see Jesus, to taste and see Jesus as good is a profoundly different experience. Now Jesus Tasting and seeing Jesus is not going to necessarily mean everything gets better in your life or you stop struggling with temptations and doubts. It, doesn't, it does mean that you will come to the unmistakable conclusion, the only sensible conclusion, 
That those who taste and see Jesus will know that the Lord is good. That's what the psalm is saying. If you truly taste, if you truly see, the conclusion will be the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing Jesus is goodness itself. It defines goodness. The soup was good because I have a category for good. Jesus is good because he's goodness itself. There is no comparative goodness. Jesus is good. No matter what else I taste in this world, I'll know I can only truly be satisfied with Jesus. And my third point is we have refuge because the Lord is good. The soup is, a, the soup is good is a great name for a restaurant if the soup really is good. It's a terrible name if the soup isn't good. But the Lord is good is one of the most profound things you can know. When the Bible says the Lord is good, it's bringing together two crucial truths about God. The Lord. The Lord, if you're a, a study of the Bible, you recognize when you see that word in Psalms in particular, the Lord means Yahweh. It is the holy covenant name of God. It is the perfect name of God. It is the name that God has given people so that they might know Him. Of all the names that matter, the most precious name, the name that could not even be uttered in Jewish times, Is, the, is God. It, it speaks of God's sovereignty, God's absolute holiness, God's otherness. God is above all things. God is over all things. Nothing happens apart from God's expressed will. God doesn't leave things to chance. God is over all things in such a way as that you can have confidence that everything that's going on in your life and everything around you is for the purpose of God. He is not random. He does not forget. He does not, he does not let things go. That's what it means when you say the Lord. And we must see that. But it isn't just the Lord. It's also is good. What does that mean? That means that all of this sovereignty, all of this holiness, all of this incredible power is meant for our good. The Bible says the Lord is good. It particularizes that power of God, that sovereignty of God, and says you can rest assured that nothing has happened to you outside of God's plan, and nothing is happening to you that isn't meant for ultimate good. We need both. You see, our problem, when we face trials, when we face suffering, we, you all know this. What things go on the table when we struggle, when we don't understand what God is doing? We start to doubt His sovereignty. Is He really in control? Can He really do this? Is he, what, what's going on? Maybe He's lost me. Maybe He forgot me. Maybe I'm just on the other side of things. And maybe whatever. And so we doubt his sovereignty. Or we doubt his goodness. Well, maybe he's against me. Maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe this is not for my good. Maybe he's judging me. And so we 
cast the character of God and the reality of God into suspicion. What, what this is saying here, what David is saying, what I've realized from my experience is that I doubted the sovereignty of God and I doubted the goodness of God and I will not do that. God is sovereign, holy, over all things and He is at work in all things for my good. This is how amazing it is. You're sitting here today. I'm sitting here today. I'm looking at my life. It's complex. Not everything's working out great. Got issues, got problems, got challenges in my life. Somehow, God is at work, absolutely in control, working in that for me. And then, there's David. And he's got his own issues, and his own struggles, and his own questions. And God's working totally sovereign and good for David. And Tim, who's not here today, God, he's got his problems, his struggles, his difficulties. We all here have those. And God is at work in real time, in this sovereign moment, working totally for everyone here for our good because he can do it. Everyone here in this moment is part of God's sovereign and good plan. I can't tell you how it's meant to work for you. I can certainly tell you, you know, a lot of what's going on in your life doesn't make sense to me. A lot of what's going on in my life doesn't make sense to me. It will all walk out, work out as God being holy, God being sovereign, and God being good. That's what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's our refuge. Blessed is the man who finds refuge in that. There's no place else to find refuge. If we don't find refuge there, then life is meaningless and cruel. And there is no hope. But if we live in this truth that God needs to give us by helping us to see, if you've seen it, you will cling to it. You will hope in it. This is what Psalm 34 is all about. It describes the life of someone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and has found refuge in Him. And to close, I'm going to return to the psalm and I'm going to read the verses we didn't read, which is now David applying the message. And we're going to close by reading these together. You can, you can read in your Bible and listen, but think about it this way. This is what it means for you if you have tasted and seen the Lord is good. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. If you are crying, taste and see that the Lord is good. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, who cut off the memory of them from the, from the earth. If you encounter people who have done you wrong, find refuge. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them 
out of all their troubles. If you're troubled today, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you crushed in spirit? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Many of the afflictions are the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. If you're afflicted today, taste and see that the Lord is good. He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How do we know this to be true? We see this in those last three verses. He keeps all his bones. That's in the New Testament used in reference to Jesus Christ who though slain did not have his bones broken. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. We know this to be true because Jesus has come to redeem us in this lost and broken world to belong to Him. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is our guarantee that what we have tasted, if we believe what we have tasted is true and what we have seen is real. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in Him. Let's pray. Lord, help us, O oh God. As I've thought about this, I've thought about my week, Lord, and I have seen things I can't solve, things I can't fix, things that come upon me that I can't avoid, things that leave me wondering what shoe is going to fall next. And I've had an enemy who harasses me, who tells me sometimes, well, maybe God loves you, but He isn't there for you. He's busy doing other things. He's not able to help you. And then other times, that same enemy says, yeah, the Lord's in control. Look what he's doing in your life. He's messing it up. He's monkeying with you. He's just testing to see what, what you're really all about. He doesn't care about you. So I need to be reminded, oh God. Lord, I don't want to be like David. I don't want to be... We don't want to be like David. We don't want to run from fear to fear to fear to fear and not learn to taste and see that you are good. We want to be people, Lord, who say, Lord, even in those bad days, even in those, those days when I know myself I have not lived the life you've called me to live, I still know that there's nothing sweeter than Jesus to taste. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus to see. And there's nothing more safe than Jesus is Lord. I pray that for everyone here, for myself, in Jesus' name.
Amen.